This is Generation Justice, a multimedia project that trains youth to harness the power of media. I'm Matthew Brown. And I'm Alicia Hernandez. As we close up the year and look forward to the future, we bring you voices from Facing Race, a national conference presented by Race Forward, the Center for Racial Justice Innovation. One of the highlights of this conference was the final panel that took place just two days after the most contentious election we've seen in decades. The leaders in this panel help us to think about where we are right now and some of what we need to do as we head into four years of pushback on racial equity movement. This evening you'll hear from Van Jones, the co-host for CNN's Crossfire, as well as Linda Sarsour, the executive director of the Arab American Association of New York, and the leader of the upcoming One Million Woman March that's happening in January. As well as Glenn Harris, who was the president of the Center for Social Inclusion, Marissa Franco, the director and co-founder of Mijente, and Cara Denise Bureau-Boyd, the director of American Indian Farmers. Much of this year has been focused on our differences. As a reminder for those listening that we have more in common than we can possibly imagine, here's Heartbeat by Nika. Facing Race is the largest multicultural and intergenerational gathering for organizers, educators, and creatives in the United States. Here's what the panelists had to say. We had planned a very different panel. We actually think this is a, an incredible opportunity for us to really talk about where we are, how we got here, and also what are the opportunities going forward. Um, so uh, we all pretty good friends here and have a lot to say. Um, I'm going to say a few opening words. We are less alone now than we've ever been. Try. We are less alone now than we've ever been. Uh, this is a big, uh, what do the kids say? This is a big woke machine. Is that? That's right. Is that it? I'm awake. That's it, right? Awake. Right? Uh, much as we would rather have something else, Tens of millions of white people are heartbroken and shocked yeah. and do not know what to do. Tens of millions of people of color are shocked and heartbroken and kicking themselves for not voting or for not working harder, et cetera. There are people on Wall Street, people in Silicon Valley, people in Hollywood, people in DC, who now will answer a call. I think it's just important that as we have the conversation and we do need to talk about the emotional reality and we do need to talk about where our folks are, honestly where they are, we also need to recognize that when tens of millions of people are feeling the same way, there's some strength there. There's some opportunity there. Um, and I'm very, very convinced by what I've seen just in the past several days that if the people in this room and if the organizations in this room decide that they want to go big on opposition and beautiful on opposition 
and amazing on opposition, I think people will be shocked by how responsive our communities and allies are. Now, I don't mean to be rude, but when you have a congressperson on the stage in my business, <laughs> they have to go first. Please give a round of applause for the, the congresswoman. Out of our movement, how, how are your constituents feeling and what are you beginning to think about in this moment? Well, first of all, huge props to Race Forward. Unbelievable right. gathering, just what we need right now. And I'll tell you, I almost wasn't gonna come because it has been crazy and really, really intense. But the reason I came is because this is the room I wanna be in right now. That's right. And, um, and we are feeling the same thing that everybody else is here, constituents. I, so I just got elected to the 7th Congressional District in Washington State. And I want to take just a minute to talk about how that happened, because this is the movement we're building, right? I'm a longtime activist, organizer, got into politics because I believe we need to organize on the inside. And we need really good people on the inside pushing, organizing, building the movement, building different kinds of structures. And we knocked on 170,000 doors. We made over 250,000 phone calls. We had 1,100 active volunteers. Many people have never been involved in democracy before. We had 77,000 people across the country contribute to raising $3 million for the campaign Woo! with an average contribution of $23, no corporate PAC money, all funded by individuals. So I tell you that because this is our victory and there are others across the country. And when you think about the people who are getting elected, it is a lot of women of color who are right there bringing all of the different pieces together. So I just want to highlight that, partly because I need it. I need some love, given, <laughs> given how tough it's been to celebrate. But also because we need it, because that is the movement we're building. So yes, the day after um, the election, and I found out that I had won my election literally right around the time that we found out that Donald Trump had won. And so you can imagine how unbelievably bittersweet it was. People were weeping, just as I'm sure we all have been. Um, but also people were trying to find those places of light and I think Van summed up many of them really beautifully because how many of you have heard that we got to double down. Whatever time I was giving before, I'm going to give ten times more, right, from the people around you. So this is an opportunity and I think that we've got to be in the space of protection for, for sure and making sure we are standing and protecting people that need us to be right there for all of us together. But then we've also got a plan, and I know that sounds really boring, but let's come up with our jujitsu moves because there will be a lot of attacks uh, and we have got to figure out and, see, and speak through and really understand for ourselves through some of the things that Trump may do that we might even want because as Van said, it's not all coordinated, right? It's not all one thing but then also figure out how we launch the biggest opposition possible to stop all of the stuff that's out there. So thank you all. I'm really happy to be here. My 
firm belief is that our primary uh, responsibility is solidarity with the Muslim community, especially uh, given the level of already vigilante activity being directed, especially at Muslim women. I wonder how you are experiencing this. If you could tell the powers that be in Hollywood, Madison Avenue, where we know tons of liberals are, um, what they should do or could do, um, what are the kinds of things that would be useful to your community right now? Thank you, um, Van, and I'm so honored and blessed um, to be on the stage with um, all of you. And I just literally got here this morning. I wasn't going to be at Facing Race either, but I also, like Pramila, wanted to be in a space with all of you and just get your energy and your love. And I'm grateful for every single one of you in this room and for the hope that you give me in a time of where many people are feeling despair. I mean, personally, um, many of you know who I am and what I do, and I, for the first time in a long time, sat and sobbed um, with my own family, with my own children, who literally kept asking me why, how did this happen, this can't be, this doesn't make any sense. And for the first time in my life, as someone who thinks I know everything, that's what I'm known for, um, <laughs> I actually didn't have any answers, and it actually didn't make sense to me either. And what people, what really got me into the moment and what has gotten the Muslim community in the moment is that this, we've, we've had these moments for 15 years already. This is our second 9-11 moment, you know, mm -hmm. when we just are so... We just don't know what's going on. We don't know what's about to happen. And 15 years of organizing that I have done, it, my community is in a way worse position than we were even days and weeks and months after 9-11. So for someone like me who's an organizer, yeah, I won a little bit here and there, but I almost feel like I've lost a lot more than I've actually won over the past 15 years. And what I want people to know in this room is that right now there is no, there is no room for let's reframe and frame. And we're, we're family in this room, so we got to keep it straight. There's a couple of things that I want people to know from this room and I want us to agree on in this room is that there's no room for oppression in Olympics right now. There is no room, I'm more worse off than you are. I'm, I'm more, you know, why? Like, if I'm up here saying I'm Muslim or you hear a Muslim woman saying, I'm afraid, I'm, I'm afraid for my safety, that doesn't mean I don't mean black people also aren't afraid. I don't mean undocumented people. I don't mean trans or people of color, I mean queer people of color or queer people. This idea that if I don't mention you, that means that I don't include you. Give me the benefit of the doubt as your sister that I do mean you. But I want us to see each other's pain. When you see my pain, I want you to see yourself in me. I don't have to say you. You, you say, that's my sister. And when she cries, I cry. When she's hurt, I'm hurt. This is the kind of movement that we need right now. Number two, now I'm talking to white folks. My white people. The white people listening now? I love you, white people. All right? It doesn't take a lot of courage for me to stand up to Donald Trump. It doesn't take a lot of courage to stand up to Arpaio. I mean, it does for people of color, obviously, in the undocumented. I'm talking to white folks now. But it takes a lot of courage for you to stand up to your family members and to the people that you love. Because that's what we need right now. And number two, when there's that Muslim registration program that starts, the first 8,000 people on that line better be white people, and you all better be telling people that you're Muslim. And the last thing, and the last thing that I'll say before um, you hear from some other remarkable colleagues of mine who are on the stage is that for those of you who haven't been all in it, this is your chance to take some load off of the rest of us and just say I'm in it. 60 million people voted for Donald Trump. 
which means that there should be about 280 million of us left, right? I want to know if you want to be the moral compass of this nation at the time when they need it most. And I want to know if you want to be the example that we set for what our nation was always supposed to be about. Sisters and brothers, my community is looking for you, right? For all of us, a multicultural coalition, multi-religious coalition, people with no faith, white people, well, whoever you are, to really watch us lead our next generation, generations to come of what it looks like when we love each other, when we protect each other, and when you look at me and say, sister, I'm ready to lay my life on the line for you, just like I'm ready to lay my life on the line for any of you in this room and your children. You know, in, on this whole theme of solidarity, I'll just ask you the same question. Um, how are folks feeling and, you know, what, what's needed? Mercy? You know, uh, this whole election, um, there was a lot of different points of trying to figure out how best to engage. Um, but I think one thing I feel, there's a lot of things that have changed as a result of the outcome, but one thing that hasn't changed that we've been saying steadily is that our vote is for social movement. Our hope is in social movement. And where we stand right now, that's what we got. You know, I'm really thinking about, you know, one of the things we talked about a lot is that there's a lot of us who, for many of us, Trump's America is already here. Uh, for many of us, we already organize and live in red states. And so I think it's important to lift up and amplify the work that has been happening in these places and, and really learn from and talk to and dialogue with people that have already been facing this kind of situation. We've been living through this. We can learn from this. I think in progressive radical movements, social movements, we always talk about wanting to have a shared agenda. We haven't had a shared agenda. And what I've been feeling recently is like, how are we going to get to a shared agenda if we don't feel like we have a shared political fate? Well, guess what? That's what we got right now. Um, I'm going to move on, but I do think that because you showed so much courage and you had people who were willing to take really, really serious risks, how did you deal with the fear? Because I think what we have right now is a lot of fear. Can you just help me understand how you dealt with that and how, how your base dealt with that and what the stages were and the tactic? Um, so it comes to a point, so it is political leadership. I think this is a micro example, but one thing that I think is a lesson of this moment is that we in the progressive movement have been risk averse and, and, and there has not been, like political leadership hasn't said, all right, let's do this. People are already scared, and so you just get to a point where people make a, a, a I'm, this is my reality, this is what could be my reality. And it's just like people being able to see the threshold and having those conversations. But political leadership and, or, and conscious organizers set, that, set the parameter so people see that there's a choice. And what I've seen time and time again is that when you get to the thing that you've been most afraid of, and you look it in the eye, and you, and you know that something bad could happen, and you do it anyway, the people that cross that threshold, they are not the same. They are not the same coming out of that. Well, thank you. Thank you for your work. Sometimes we don't pay attention to rural America and, and rural struggle. And I wonder if you'd be willing uh, to share. What are your folks feeling in your network? Make sure people know about the great work that you're doing um, on the agricultural side. Um, and, and what are the needs now going forward? My people are inspired 
we have actually been under attack and we've been defending this homeland since 1492. And I can say today, we are still here. Historically, we have one of the largest, the largest gathering of tribal nations across the country. In fact, we have had tribal nations, indigenous people from around the world traveling to Standing Rock to stand with us on an issue to protect not only our sacred water, but Mother Earth for ourselves, for our people, and for all future generations. And so we actually are looking at this moment in this time as a way that we feel that our ancestors have prepared us through time and through past battles. And we feel that we've learned. And through some of those battles, like the, little, uh, the Battle of Little Bighorn and Wounded Knee, when we felt isolated and like we were standing alone, a call to action has actually went out from our tribal leaders and has been echoed throughout other tribal nations for everyone, not only the people in this room, not people of color, white people, everyone who cares about water, water is life, and Mother Earth, to come and stand with us. To let's stand in solidarity That's and fine. coordination um, that we need to kill the black snake. How many of you believe that you can drink oil? <laughs> we can't. Mother Earth is already getting sick. We know that from the fracking and all the tornadoes in Oklahoma and different places. And so we actually feel that we are in a space where we can hold this. We've been holding it, but we have to have your help. We have to have our allies to come and join us on these front lines to stand with us because we can do this and we can win. So we're actually feeling somewhat, you know, what, what, stronger. What does solidarity look like? You said, you know, stand with us. And people might think that means, you know, retweet some stuff. Uh, and we need that too. It's yeah. called hashtag no dapple. Yeah. <laughs> um, so solidarity, and we've had this conversation over the past two days here in this space and multiple spaces. Um, solidarity is some of those organizing and coming to ground zero, the front lines. Um, we actually have water, uh, warriors that are in the water, standing, preventing um, the construction workers from proceeding. And many people have been arrested. Um, there are others who are organizing and they're sending supplies to help the camp to winterize. There are those who have GoFundMe accounts who they're sending monies. Um, there are sign-on letters. You know, the solidarity, the movement is wherever you find that you and your resources can help to strengthen this battle. So there are many fronts that we feel that we're fighting on because this is huge. Um, environmental, it also infringes upon our indigenous sovereignty. Uh, how many people know that the United States of America has broken every treaty that it's ever made yeah. with indigenous people? Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's time to honor the treaties. It's time to respect our nations. There are over 500 nations within this nation. So we actually have nation-to-nation -nation relationships. So you can imagine what our tribal leaders are feeling in this time and space as we prepare to go in to have those conversations uh, with a Trump administration, as well as the National Black Farmers Association. We actually have three memorandums of understanding, one with the U.S. Department of Agriculture, one with U.S. Forest Service, and another with the Environmental Protection Agency. And all those MOUs surround or, or build upon advocacy, outreach, and technical assistance for disadvantaged and underserved people because of the historical cases, the lawsuits that were won over discrimination and I want you to know today that throughout those lawsuits and that legal battle, no one was ever fired or reprimanded. How can you have that blatant findings of discrimination? 
I want to address that. What can we do? You know, maybe in your local municipalities, you're being hindered from actually growing your own food, participating in agriculture, being able to meet the needs of your own families. And it's until on these local levels, state levels, and federal levels that we remove these barriers and restrictions that prevent people from being self-sufficient you know, that we're not going to move forward. And I feel that that's the time and the space um, that we're in now where we can work together to um, address those issues. So, you know, I know about your work, and you did a beautiful job of describing some of the resistance, uh, some of the history. But you aren't just fighting against stuff, you're fighting for stuff. Yes. And I just want, before we go on to Glenn, I just want you to ex describe to people what you're trying to create with this uh, beautiful work that you're doing on the land. What we're trying to create is a greener environment, a sustainable economic environment where people can actually have the ability to provide for themselves and their families. That's my job. My information is available, and uh, we hope that you will connect with us and help us to let's get growing. Glenn, your organization is called the Center for Social Inclusion, so you must have just been toe up. With yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, such a powerful network, such a huge uh, impact, um, and then this body blow. How are you feeling and what do you think the needs are? Just the importance, you know, I'm struck by King's words of uh, power and love. Uh, and in this moment, we need all the love we can get, um, and we cannot lose sight of the fact that uh, we need all the power uh, that we can get. That's right. Right? Um, and so in that way, uh, over the last few days, I've been really, uh, you know, just touched by, the, by seeing folks in the street. Uh, I know there were a few folks here in the street last night. Um, and I think we need that. I think in this moment, we need to be really clear, right, that we don't compromise on misogyny or racism, period. That's right, brother. Tell them. Um, And I, I love, we just echo what everyone here shared. Um, in this moment, um, we're here, and, and Van, you said this, it's a white lash, it's a backlash uh, against our success. Mm -hmm. And folks named so beautifully what the nature of that success is, which it's always been local. The change we want was never gonna come from up high. That's right. right? We have been making those successes, having those successes, making that ground for at least the last 15 years. Um, and I think in that way, even as we're in this moment recognizing, we know the ground has shifted. We know we have a fight force ahead of us in the, in the coming weeks, months, and years. But the reality is we have those wins. And I think in that way, um, it's so important in this moment that we hold on to what does local success look like. Um, that we hold that we're gonna have to be in active resistance, but that at the same time, it can't just be about resistance, right? It, it has to be about the larger vision that we have for, for the communities we wanna live in. And in this moment, we need, as Pramila shared, we need, we need in this moment, we need a strong inside-outside strategy, yes, right? It doesn't mean that our strategies, that we, we always have to be in agreement about what our strategies or tactics are, but we need to be clear about that we're sharing the same destination and vision. That inside-outside strategy that allows us, especially in this moment, to stand strong for our community. If, if, you, if you could make any tweaks or adjustments 
to the way that the racial justice movement is proceeding in light of this uh, Trump victory? What might they be? Tricky question. It's a beautiful question. It's, it's maybe the most important question in this moment in my mind. This, this election was a referendum on race and democracy. There's no question about it. Um, and one of the things that we have failed to do, I mean, let's be clear. Liberals didn't name race. We let the other side name race, mm -hmm. right? In explicit ways that were harmful and detrimental to our community. And every day we go out and still are trying to make the case to liberal America about why we need to name race, right? That is a central challenge for us. Do not believe that we can get to an inclusive democracy without racial justice. It is not possible. It is at the root of who we are as a nation in many ways. And so I think that is one side of this contradiction, that we need to be much more explicit about being able to name race, right? Um, and at the same time, um, uh, Rinku Sen, I think a few of you may have heard of her before, <laughs> um, has said, uh, you know, just some really, I think a, a really powerful thing that in this moment we need to redefine our ideas of race. We need to be really clear that it includes white people, but that it does not center white people, right? That's the key word. And so I think we need these strategies that help white folks understand they are a race. I think we need strategies that we help folks understand that when we are naming race, that we are naming not only, the, uh, that we are naming racism as well as sexism as well as homophobia, as well as Islamophobia. We need to have inclusive strategies in that way. Yeah, I, I just think this is the hardest part. Oh. Um, I mean, my, my life is weird because I, I literally work every day with my opponent. But there's this weird thing I can't get my head wrapped around, which is that for millions and millions of Trump's voters, the idea that them voting for someone who is bigoted makes them all racist is actually consolidating his coalition. It's actually consolidating his coalition. It's actually driving more people toward him because they're now saying, you're calling me a racist because of who I voted for. You're, 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 you are calling me the most horrific thing. And the right is now using that to organize them even more. How do you get your head wrapped around that as somebody in public office and public life? I mean, I think that is the huge question. You know, my district is predominantly white voters. And I am guessing that I had some people that voted for Trump that voted for me because there were only two Democrats in the race. And um, I know we had huge support from working people, so a lot of labor unions. And we know that not all labor unions, white folks in labor unions, there were lots of Trump voters and I've been having a lot of conversations with the unions about the deep work that needs to be done with their white working class folks on race. And that is, I think, really, really important. And the conversation we've been having is, and I think it might have been on this stage, either last year or the year before, when I was at Race Forward, where somebody said, we need to call people in as well as call people out. And I can't remember if that was you, Rinku, or somebody else. But I, I do think that's important. You know, I serve in a state senate um, where I'm the only woman of color. And if you just shame people over and over again, you end up 
not being able to move anywhere. And so part of, I think, what we have to do is really have the discussion about what happens for somebody when you say race. When I say race on the Senate floor or with white folk, that leap, it is, it, it, when we say something is institutionally race, you know, when, when there's institutional racism, or we even just say the word race, immediately what somebody says back, and I've been in this situation so many times, is, I'm not racist. Are you calling me racist? So we have got to figure out how we have this conversation about race in a way that allows us to recognize that what somebody hears is part of what we have to break down. That and, is part of what we have and to so, break and down. This is, and this, and so this is, this is the tension. I, I don't want to be, you guys are the smartest and the best in, in this field, and I don't want to be too easy on this. On the one hand, we want to be explicit about what we're going through, and we don't want to compromise with racism. And on the other hand, we want to figure out some way to actually speak and be heard That's right. and not build Trump's coalition for him by the way that we are talking. And this is the challenge. How do you see it? So could we agree that some, like, sometimes I don't have the heart, just I don't got time <laughs> to explain to white people that Muslims deserve to be treated with dignity and respect, that young black people shouldn't be targeted or stopped. And free. I mean, I'm just trying to get to a point. Could it be some of us that do the white people and then everybody else? I don't know. I just can't. Like, I don't got time. So I also want to say, so, that, so on that point, I think sometimes there's always this burden on the very most directly impacted people to then to try to also bring other people along. Like, I'm tired, man. Like, I'm tired. Like, I'm tired of having to go stand in like an all-white church and be like, Muslims also believe in the same God that you believe in. And we're all the children of God. Like, it, I actually feel so small and so, like, my, like my, I stopped doing that, by the way. But my dignity is taken away from me. Like, I'm, I don't want to, we should agree on some basic principles. But I do think that there's still need, I think white people need to talk to white people, but there could be, and there are people within our communities that are just better at it than you. Like, Van can have that conversation. I don't know, it works. Some other people, Glenn might be, it works, but it just doesn't work for me. <laughs> but I will say something else about when you talked about, um, when Glenn talked about local government and stuff. This is another problem that we have in the movement. I'm going to keep it real, too. Because even as someone who's a, I'm a community organizer, my loyalty is not to any political party, it's to my people, right? That's where my loyalty, my loyalty first lies. But I also understand how stuff works. Like, I'm not naive either. Like, I know there are certain wins that we need and things that we need that we gotta work with the powers that be who are in office, who gotta do what we're, they're supposed to do because they represent us. So what happens often in the movement is the minute they see Linda or Marissa or Glenn go sit in a meeting with a congressperson or a mayor, the first thing that the movement, some people, there they go, selling us out again, sitting at that table. But guess what? When you get a win like, you know, special prosecutor or we, we win some local legislation to protect immigrants, remove detainers, and so all, all of a sudden everybody's like, but you just call the sellouts for working with the opposition. You know what I mean? Like, like there got to be a, some sort of balance in the movement that, again, we give each other benefit of the doubt that when you go in there, that I'm not getting paid by no city council member or mayor or congressperson. You got to believe that when your sisters and brothers go on the inside, they're fighting for you. They're not selling you out. So that's a tension that I have. And I want to say one last thing also about the different roles we all have. If you know history, we had the Martin Luther King, like, 
camp, right? Their people, there was that group, right? Then there was like the Malcolm X types, right? So Martin Luther King was like, yo, y'all better do some stuff because them people over there ain't, see, they ain't going, they, they look, they, they even going after me now. We gotta, it's okay for us to be super radical and some of us a little bit less radical. That's cool, I, I don't judge people because I know that we all got a role to play. We all know how to play different roles, but we gotta understand and respect that, right? So when, when Van is sitting up, sitting with some, you know, Trump supporters, I'm like, damn, that's my brother up there doing, doing something I don't wanna do. He's doing that on our behalf. So, so I want you next time, next time when you see people sitting in the White House or whatever, there's always this thing, oh, they're cooning, they're, they're so, no. Those are our children, those are your, your sisters and brothers, like love them, understand them. They had, they, they had a thought process before they went in there, right? So let's believe in each other and believe that we have our best interests at heart because I bet you when we start doing that, we're gonna go way farther because we spend too much time criticizing each other than actually doing. And when we criticize each other, which is cool, but I don't got no problem with, maybe there's something I did, maybe I made a mistake, I'm human, Van's human, we're all human beings here, we make mistakes, but if you're gonna criticize me about something that I did that you don't think is right, you better offer me something else, you better give me an alternative. Don't just tear me down for what I did and then not give me something else to work with, so understanding our roles, understanding that there are local governments that we gotta work with, and guess what happens when you organize and you work? You get people and champions that were on the streets with us on the inside. <laughs> what have you learned over this past uh, several years of struggle that you think is the key of the key of the key for the resilience? Take the risk and make the damn play. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you, Kara, Marissa, and Glenn for your commitment to racial equity in the face of opposition. Hearing the conviction in your words inspires hope, not only for me, but for the future. Van, thank you so much for your sheer honesty. When you spoke the night after the election, you tapped into a very real fear that Americans woke up to, and you did so with grace. To Linda Sarsor, your spirit is what keeps the ongoing movement for equality alive. Thank you for your fearlessness. No one has ever challenged the status quo and looked so stylish while doing it. To keep the feeling of empowerment going, here's a song called Revolution by Helly Love. Come to the end of another great show. We'd like to give a special thanks to tonight's guests, Cara Denise Bure Boyd, Director of American Indian Farmers, Marissa Franco, co-founder of Mi Gente, Glenn Harris, the president of the Center for Social Inclusion, as well as Crossfire co-hosts Van Jones and Linda Sosar, Executive Director of the Arab American Association of New York. 
Editing assistance for this week's show came from Kateri Zuni. Production assistance for tonight's show came from Roberta Rael and George Lina Pena. Stay connected with us. Check out our website, generationjustice.org, where you can listen to all of our past radio programs, see music playlists, read our blogs, watch videos, and so much more. Our podcasts are available on iTunes, so be sure to subscribe. We're also active on social media, so be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, with additional funding from the McCune Foundation, Konalma Health Foundation, and of course, all of you who have contributed to the project by visiting our website and clicking Donate. I'm Matthew Brown. And I'm Alicia Hernandez. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word, so stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Good night, woke folk, and remember, tomorrow's another day, and you are loved. Pushing the blame on now I go know your father. You say they came and they took all we had possessed. They have to take the abuse and they of course the present state within children is to Use our goodness and nourishment in the name of missionary. Imagine that